If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919600. Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm James. And I'm Faye. So we both know today's guest. It's David Gill from St. John's Innovation Centre. I have done some work with him in the past with Charles Cotton on the Cambridge Phenomenon. Yeah, and I know David very well from, uh, you know, the Bradfield Centre and the St. John's Innovation Centre. Have a great relationship and uh, we're regularly sharing notes, comparing notes. And you heard David speak at an event, didn't you? And you thought, I know, I'm going to, I'm going to come drag him kicking and screaming onto the podcast. That's right. We've mentioned Innovate Cambridge a number of times on the podcast. And uh, I went along to the launch event at King's College last year. And David uh, was part of the speaker lineup. And uh, he, was, he did a short kind of 10-minute presentation on just the history of innovation in Cambridge, the the formation of science parks, the growth of the cluster, and I just thought, do you know what, that would be really interesting to get onto the, to get David onto the podcast and share some of those insights. Yeah. So I reached out, and uh, luckily he agreed. Great, and he was going to share his encyclopedic knowledge with us, is he? He is. Looking forward to it. So, David, thanks for spending some time with us today. Very much appreciated. It's a great pleasure. Um, I think this is going to be a, an interesting and, and, and broad conversation. Uh, but should we begin with just getting a sense of the history of, of Cambridge uh, from the science part perspective and how things have developed? Because I, if I'm if I'm correct, I think we've got to 30 science parks now around Cambridge. Uh, give or take, yes. Which seems a, a very high number for such a small place. So maybe you could give us some insights into in terms of how we how we got to where we are today. Of course, and I think the history of the science parks, plural, is key to understanding the technology cluster around Cambridge, because if if you'll permit me just for a very short moment to leap way back in the past, you think the university started in the year 1209, there or thereabouts. But there was hardly anything to do with science and technology until the 1860s, when the Cavendish Laboratory, the physics laboratory, was created at the insistence of uh, Prince Albert, who was the Chancellor of the University at the time, importing the, the German model of universities teaching science. Okay. And then it took another goodness me, nearly 100 years until Cambridge Consultants got going in 1960. And the founders of Cambridge Consultants had the vision of putting the brains of Cambridge at the disposal of British industry, which they pretty much did. But they had a a struggle on their hands because the planning regulations going back to 1945 had envisaged Cambridge being a small market town in the fens and any development would have to be to support the university and if you wanted to build commercial space to employ more than five people you needed to apply for an an industrial permit 
and those were so rarely given that they were they changed hands a bit like uh, you used to find in some cities the the medallion of taxi drivers. You know, it was a retirement policy. And this this logjam was only really broken um, in the late sixties because IBM in the mid sixties had applied to move its European uh, research headquarters here. It was turned down because of the planning regulations. The pushback from that led to a review of the regulations, which was led by Professor Sir Neville Mott, um, curiously enough, a physicist, the head of the Cavendish Laboratory. And his review is quite short. From memory, I think it's only about seven pages. But they took ooh, 18 months or so to pull it together. The key thing being that in that time, the mock committee had been consulting with everybody and making sure everybody was aligned, everybody was happy with the eventual recommendations, which in a nutshell were that some development to enable the commercialisation of science would be permitted across and around Cambridge because otherwise it would be a great loss to Cambridge and to the national economy. Uh. So going right back to uh, 1969 in the Mott Report, there was this sense of the symbiosis of what research and industry could do together, the impact it could have on society. And the following year, John Bradfield, who was at the time the senior bursar of Trinity College, came up with the original plans for where we are sitting now, the Cambridge Science Park. And I suspect back then there were quite a few people who thought that uh, John Bradfield was being somewhat foolhardy. But as we know now, it's expanded and expanded. And I, I think when I last counted, is it 150-something companies that are on, present on the Science Park now? Wow. And it led to other similar developments. Um, the St. John's Observation Park over the road came out of the visit that the senior bursar of St. John's College, Chris Johnson, did in 1985 to Science Parks in the U.S., the model he particularly liked was one he found in Salt Lake City, where on a university research park, there was a building with a team who were dedicated to helping first-time academic entrepreneurs overcome all the problems they didn't know they had. Business planning, recruiting people, finding customers, getting oh. investment and so forth. Chris came back to Cambridge thinking, we need one of those here. And in 1987, that's how St. John's Innovation Centre started. Um, in our back office, we have some wonderful photographs of, of the original buildings going up in the, the middle of what looks like a wasteland uh -huh. because both on your side of the road here in the Science Park and on our side of the road uh, at St John's, the land was pretty poor quality. Um, I believe in each case it had belonged to the respective college owners since the 16th century, but in the Second World War it had been badly churned up by the US Army using it as a tank marshalling yard ahead of the D-Day landings. Right. And the blessing of that, of course, was that the, the opportunity cost of putting something new and a little bit risky, like a science park, on this land was minimal. And in each case, the senior bursar at the respective colleges could say to the investment committee, we'll do an experiment and we haven't got that much to lose. Mm. And then after St John's went up, uh, in very short order, I think it was Bapram, Granter Park, and then the, the, it's as if the floodgates had slowly been opened. And in our working lifetimes, I think, for instance, we've seen Idea Space, uh -huh. another one which um, was originally only one site on the West Cambridge site. A little bit of um, philanthropic endowment from Herman Hauser, some public monies through the East of England Development Agency, and then from one site to three for the, the uh, Idea Space 
And now I've got a list in front of me um, of those science parks that I could do from the top of my head. I, I won't read them all out, but it's enough to cover two columns on, a, on an A4 sheet. Well, I mean, you, you mentioned, obviously, Cambridge Science Park. I think that opened in 1970. Yes. So the, the, the relative amount of elapsed time since the first one opened to getting to 30 has been very quick. I mean, do you have a view on where that demand is coming from and... How how do they differentiate, if at all? Is it just a, just the demand for more space leads to more science parks? Or, you know, are you seeing specialisms in each one of these areas or particular focus? I, I think having the right space with all the supporting infrastructure, including venture capital investment and the like, becomes a self-reinforcing cycle. And... By that, I mean that in the early days, I, I, I graduated in 1981, and back then, nobody in my social group was talking about going to work for a tech startup. Nowadays, I think if you were to go and talk to a lot of graduate students just a couple of miles away from here uh, in the city centre, it would be one of the favoured vocations. Mm. And with the growth of supportive infrastructure, both hard and soft, it becomes less and less risky. I mean, there's that famous phrase, which I think started from Andy Richards, one of the leading bio-investors, when he said, Cambridge is a safe place to do risky things. And one of the things he meant by that is, let's say you are a 27-year-old graduate in biology and you work for a startup company here on the Science Park and it doesn't work out, you haven't burnt all your bridges. Mm. That experience would probably count in your favour. You could either go and work for one of the bigger companies around here, you could work for another startup, but either way, it hasn't been the risk that it would have been if you had no alternatives. And to your second point, <clears throat> particularly with sector specialisation, I, I think it is remarkable the extent to which tech companies in the broad sense of that term always want to flock together. And a, a few years ago, when there was a great deal of pressure on early stage on startup space, Derek Jones of Babram and I both surveyed our respective tenants. And we were trying to work out if we built an extension, let's say, that was out towards Newmarket or north of Ely, what sort of price discount would you, the tech entrepreneur, want to go there? And almost universally, they replied, it wouldn't apply. We want to be within easy distance of the centre of Cambridge. And above all, we want to be surrounded by other companies like ourselves. Yeah. And I think that other companies like ourselves is partly a question of stage of development, partly a question of sector, and partly a sense of mission too. And so you get quite often, as you would know in this building, get companies who in other cities might be considered competitors who are only 100 metres away from each other yeah. and like it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And um, my last question before I hand over to Faye. Sorry for hogging the microphone. Um, one of the papers that you've written that you've uh, kindly shared, you talked about this five-mile problem. Oh, yes. Um, which I think is kind of relevant to that last point. You know, this this maximum distance of, uh, I guess, tolerance of, you know, distance between university departments and the industrial base. So, you know, do you think that demand of 30 science parks has solved that problem or do you still... Do you still think that exists within the city? I think the um, 
the five mile problem goes right back to uh, something that the Mott report identifies, and it was discussed at length in the mid 1980s with the the SQW review of the Cambridge phenomenon. So it's not new. What I what I think has happened with the proliferation of science parks is you could extend the five miles a little bit provided you've got the appropriate transport in place. But the issue being, the it's not just that within my science park I want to be surrounded by other companies like me. I also want to have access to all the other people who provide relevant services and who yeah. are also doing research in the, in the city centre. Yeah. And where I think we're probably going in the future is existing science parks will have to, to use the jargon, densify. Mm. So if most buildings have been, let's say, three stories high in the past, they're now going to be five or six because you need to have more people working within the same square mile or so. Yeah. As you say, pushing further out of the city uh, perimeter isn't the solution because people don't want to be that distant from the centre. I think that's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's fascinating. You know, we have these clusters and, and the, the fact that there's proximity to businesses, I think is really important. And we, we often refer to it as a secret source um, of Cambridge. So can you tell us a little bit more about what you think that is and, that, and, you know, why people want to have that close proximity? I think there are some obvious practical issues. For instance, if you need professional advice, you want to be able to go and see your patent agent or your solicitor because you're about to negotiate a venture capital investment, that kind of thing. There's also, I think, particularly in the life of the early stage companies, um, Stu McTavish, who used to run Ideaspace, who was its first director, had this wonderful phrase of saying that an hour in the life of a startup entrepreneur is like the, a week in the life of a middle manager of an established corporate. And my version of that would be, I think, for a lot of the companies in the St. John's Innovation Centre, it's almost as if every week is finals week. Mm. And when you're sitting exams, especially a lot of them together, it really helps to be surrounded by other people who understand what you're doing and understand the state of mind you're in. So there's the psychological aspect of you you spark off people who've got similar problems. To give a, an example of that, um, towards the end of last year, uh, we had one company in the building that, that had grown quite quickly and needed to find a new chief operating officer, which they did, and that proved to be a success. And they were consulted by a couple of other companies who were looking to recruit a COO as well. How did you go about it? What made you choose that person? What specifics are you looking for? That kind of thing. And that's just one example amongst many. And that's why I think the density of clusters matters so much. It's the overall mindset. There's the access to other stakeholders like professional advisors okay. and that ability to spark off each other for specific questions that wouldn't occur to people in the wider world. Yeah, absolutely. And it's also that the the research, you know, obviously we're very strong on research, but it's that move to commercialization as well. And that's where you need to learn and share and and guide each other. And you can do that. And what I think is particularly interesting is when you do that across industry. So yes, you can go and sit with a load of life sciences people or a load of tech people, but actually when you start to interact across industries, I think it gets really interesting. And that's quite unique for us here in Cambridge too. Oh, very much so. And I think that comes back to 
the fact that Cambridge is unusual in the breadth of disciplines in which it's strong. And you can look at the data for tech companies as of, let's say, last year. And as a cohort, those who are in communications, IT, would still be the largest single cohort. But year on year, they're being caught up by people in life science in the broad sense of that term. It could be biotech, it could be pharmaceutical. Because in the past 10 years or so, there have been more life science companies formed each year. Uh, they employ more people. They consume huge amounts of investment. So over time, you see quite a range of different disciplines drawing equal. And the experience of having to grow a company is quite similar, whether it's in telecoms or whether it's in pharmaceuticals at the early stages. Less so, of course, once you've grown, less so, of course, once you've you've made that breakthrough uh, to, let's say, 100 employees. But in the early days, as an entrepreneur, you're going to be seeking advice from other people like yourself in all sorts of disciplines. And I think it's so often at those edges, it's, it's sometimes called the, the liminal advantage, it's at the edges between disciplines that the real creativity happens. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, how much do you think it's, you know, you started the conversation by saying Cambridge consultants and then obviously the councils came in with... Um, colleges, apologies, came in, Trinity College, St. John's. How much do you think that that's very, is it unique here or, you know, is it replicable across other cities and other locations around the world? Or do you think we've got something special? Oh, wow. Um, I, I suspect like you, we at St. John's get visitors all the time from other countries yep. coming to try and understand how, how things work. And I always try to make the point that each cluster will have its own special circumstances. But you probably need at least three things to come together. You would need a base of research anyway if you want to be a tech cluster. That, that goes without saying. You probably also need a few visionary people with a sense of mission who are prepared to walk through brick walls to make it happen because otherwise you'd never do it. And I, I feel immensely privileged that I met personally um, both Sir John Bradfield and Chris Johnson, and I interviewed Chris Johnson at length for writing a short history of the Innovation Centre. And you realise that beneath the, the charm, the courtesy, these were steely people who were going to make things happen and put in the immense amount of time and energy that was required. So you need people with vision. And the third thing, I think, is they, they were able to build coalitions. And very quickly around Cambridge, it ceased to be, you've got, let's say, St. St. John's, which wants to build an innovation centre. Chris worked with a whole range of stakeholders. He himself was, for instance, a city councillor. He worked with the planning authorities. And over time, when you look at, for instance, the, the membership and the sponsorship of the SQW report in 1985, it's quite remarkable that it wasn't just Trinity and John's. You had other colleges like Emmanuel and Peterhouse who'd sponsored it. You had the, the local council. You had some big professional services firms who sponsored it. So it was people realising together we've got to make this happen. This, this is for the good of all of us. So my, my three takeaways would be you need the, the research base. You need people with the vision, the drive to make it happen despite all the setbacks. And pretty quickly you've got to build the broad coalition. I think another interesting area is the role of government, both within Cambridge and also more broadly across the UK. And there's, I think there's a number of areas where government crops up. 
So am I right in saying that the government had a fairly light involvement in the growth of the cluster in Cambridge? And it's been, I think you described it as like a hybrid model, which has been very much like public-private partnership and obviously the university driving a lot of that as well. Is that accurate? Yes, I think it is. And particularly if you look back at the, the foundational years, 60s, 70s, 80s, there was no central government body ministry that says we want to create science parks, we want to create uh, the science clusters. Mm. And I think um, from personal experience, government didn't get involved with incubators, incubation centres really until right at the end of the 1990s. So that didn't really matter in Cambridge. Arguably, in the first few decades, uh, local government was, shall we say politely, at least as much a hindrance as a help. For instance, where the St. John's Innovation Park is, the land is divided almost equally between City Council and South Cam's District Council. And in the early days, in the 1980s, the city was quite keen on having new industries evolve on site. Uh, the District Council wasn't so keen on new build going up. So it was a little bit difficult in the early years. I think that has now changed, not least because local government of all stripes can see the economic and the social impact that the tech sector makes. However, coming back to the role of central government, I, I think it'd be fair to say that, that Cambridge has by and large done its own thing without needing either a master plan, a guiding hand uh, or funding, uh, unlike some other parts of the UK where it has been government intervention, particularly central government intervention, that has enabled the cluster to, to grow. And the, the two exceptions I think I'd make to that in, in Cambridge context are around about the year 2000, when David Sainsbury was Minister for Science, and he was somebody who held that role for quite a few years. He understood the possibilities of government as well as their limitations implicitly. And a number of the initiatives that he launched to help student entrepreneurship, to enable universities to get involved with the early stage seed capital scene, I think did put in place the foundations of the future. That would be one exception. And the other, I think, um, will be looking to the future, but with the Greater Cambridge Partnership, seeking to improve the infrastructure, whether it's housing or transport more recently, I think that is really quite important. But you might almost call that a framework condition rather than specifically a technology condition. I just want to jump in, actually, if you, if you don't mind. Um, do you think, just going, th those two examples were great, you know, and I think we can come back to those as well. But do you think it's been a bit of a double-edged sword, the fact that we, Cambridge has been quite self-sufficient and and but it's a but it's a huge contributor to gdp in the uk and we just missed out on funding for an innovation zone because the assumption is they're all right they're just getting on with it so do you think it's a bit of a double-edged sword i i do and and i think um i remember um going back to um the the days of the east of england development agency uh, there was a, a phrase that was quite often used, which was uh, uh, ABC anywhere but Cambridge. So if you were thinking about where you were going to put investment, Cambridge had been ruled out on, on the grounds of optics. It seems to be doing so well already, it doesn't need any more. Um, likewise, I, I think um, the really intriguing report that London Economics produced for the university last month, looking at the impact of the university, if I remember rightly, the, the headline figure was that the, the financial impact of the university is something like four times that of the Premier League. Uh, 
So you've got this tiny city of just under 150,000 people, or if you wanted to include South Cambridgeshire as well, still only about 300,000 people, where let's say 60,000 people are employed in, in tech in the broad sense. And the impact on the UK economy is transformative, but it's the opposite of to him that hath shall be given. Uh, because Cambridge seems to have, it, it doesn't tend to get given. It seems odd. I mean, I don't want to necessarily make this political, or maybe we do. Let's spice things up, I don't know. But, you know, when you have a world-class asset, you would have thought it makes sense to invest, to grow that into a real, true, global success story, rather than throttle or or hinder or underinvest, following some kind of levelling up agenda in other areas which don't necessarily have the ingredients to have anywhere near the world potential of somewhere like Cambridge. I, I agree. And I, I think from a public policy point of view, it makes eminent sense to keep investing in Cambridge, uh, whether that's in the original research or whether it's in enabling uh, co-investment in new venture capital funds. You, know, you could look at either end of the spectrum. And the contribution that Cambridge can make to other parts of the country that haven't started with the same base is a contribution of know-how. And ideally, you would be using uh, people like yourselves to help other parts of the country grow by analysing the situation, working out what the weaknesses are and what needs to be addressed. And I think to some extent that is already happening on a completely voluntary private basis in the sense that, for instance, when you look at a number of the people who are active Cambridge Angels, they have been investing in other parts of the country and in doing so, transferring not just their their funds, but their know-how of how to build businesses, yeah. how to build angel networks, how to build clusters of creativity. So that's the bit that you should be seeking to to grow rather than trying to ration the funding that comes into Cambridge in the first place. So just being a little bit devil's advocate, do you actually believe that that will work? So if you remember the Cambridge and Peterborough Independent Economic Review that was done a few years ago, there was a plan to take the expertise that's in Cambridge and move it across into other areas. But I'm not entirely sure that that's worked within region. So do you, th is, I guess what I'm asking, is there an argument to build the fires, you know, to keep, keep flaming the fires where it's already successful and let other areas do different things? Or should we be spreading across the rest of the UK? There's... um. A, a phrase that Matthew Bullock, who is one of the founders, really, of the Cambridge phenomenon, uses, which is, you, you can't move a burning bonfire. And by that, I, I think Matthew means that if you haven't got at least the raw materials of a bonfire somewhere else, you, you haven't got, the to extend the metaphor, the, uh, the, the leaves ready on the pyre, then simply putting a flame to it isn't going to work. Yeah. And I go back to my three preconditions of you need to have some sort of research base that, particularly if you're trying to build a tech cluster, one with an embedded advantage. You need to have people who have the vision and the mission and who are prepared to walk through walls. And you need to build the collaboration, the sense that we're all needed together. And one of the things that in all the years I've been in Cambridge I found unique is the sense that the people who work here 
might grumble about at the price of housing or the congestion of the roads, but they believe in Cambridge itself and want to make it work. And I suspect that if you are in another location which doesn't have those leaders and which doesn't have at least the, the embers of a culture of we're proud of where we are and we want to make it work, then no amount of bringing in know-how from elsewhere yeah. is going to be transformative. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll have the research vision collaboration. I think that sums it up perfectly. Is there a call for our new department of science, innovation and technology, do you think, to you know come to Cambridge and find out a little bit more? Is there, is there anything else they can be doing? I think there is the opportunity for the new department to, to learn. If I hesitate, it's because I've been doing this job for about 14 years, I think. And apart from lockdown, just about every month, we would get delegations from India, from China, from Colombia, from Argentina. And they would be at most two hours in, in and out. And you have the Minister of Industry from Chile, or you've got the Central Bank of Colombia or whatever it might be, come in and say, tell us your secret. And we start talking about, well, you need to have these three things and this is how you build it out in greater length and they say thanks very much and they leave and either nothing happens or you find out from the grapevine a few years later that they became obsessed with things like infrastructure so if the new department were to come to Cambridge I think it would have to be a fairly long concerted and well digested visit otherwise it will be more of the same so we spent some time there talking about the advantages and benefits of clusters. It's probably right that we also examine some of the perhaps unintended consequences of a successful cluster. You mentioned there, David, things like the cost of housing and traffic congestion. Obviously, things like office uh, space prices are high due to the demand. Lab space is very scarce at the moment in Cambridge. Uh, and, and there's lots of others, impact on schooling and hospitals. What's your view around uh, the kind of impacts of the, the success of Cambridge? I think it's inevitable that any growing cluster suffers the, the pains of overexposure, overpopulation. And there was a, a piece of writing from Sir Jeff Morgan, who at the time was the head of Nesta. He's now at University College London. Talking about innovation districts, and he identified three things. The first one was that you have to put at least as much time and effort into curation as creation. And we were talking just now about ministerial visits. They tend to be focused entirely on creation, put in a science park, build a venture fund, whatever. But the curation, making sure the thing works long, long term, is just as hard, but less, less glitzy, shall we say. The second one is the returns to real estate. And after a while, you do find there's a, a certain amount of, I can't avoid the word, nimbyism that creeps in. And all of us around this table will be aware of how in recent years, for instance, when Cambridge Science Park has tried to expand, there will have been many objections from local residents, despite the fact that it's the science park that will have created the jobs for the people who live in the houses nearby, and also created the value of the housing. You know, before the Science Park came along, this part of Cambridge was somewhat neglected, should we say. 
And um, Jeff's third point was you have to be intensely careful not to believe your own propaganda. And round about 2015-16, I was becoming quite despondent that Cambridge was so keen on telling the outside world how well it had done that it wasn't focused on the problems under its own nose. I genuinely believe that in the past few years that has turned around quite considerably. The issue of coordination, I think it's remarkable how uh, just in the past year or so, uh, with a new head of Cambridge Enterprise, the university, uh, also led by the pro-vice-chancellor, has been addressing the issue of coordination with the project called Innovate Cambridge, which is still ongoing, still in the planning stage. But I think it mattered enormously that the, the university recognised that whatever it does in economic terms is strategic. It's, I think, the second largest employer after the NHS. Collectively, the university, the colleges are the largest landowners. They're the largest producers of talent. So whatever the university does is strategic. And I think it's now recognising that it has to accept a kind of coordinating role. And the second element of that, as we touched on a little bit earlier, I think is the way to which the Greater Cambridge Partnership has had a difficult road uh, because, of course, in suggesting change, it will always have uh, trodden on some people's toes at some stage. But now a lot of its strategic vision about housing, about transport is coming to pass. And as a specific example of that, I would say the other side of the road from the Innovation Park, leading down towards Cambridge North, the relatively new station, in the next 10 years or so, there will be something like 5,000 new homes, mm. which will be within walking distance, or at least within biking distance, of high-value employment. So we have a, begun to address some of those hard issues. The ones that remain, uh, water, I'm not quite sure how that can be addressed in the short term, but in the long term, it probably means more being done by way of reservoirs and conservation and power because the industries that we are in are highly consumptive of yeah. electricity in particular. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are still a lot of problems, but at least I think the mindset now is to stop congratulating ourselves <laughs> and address the fundamentals of the challenges. I think it's really exciting the fact that we are starting to see things coming to fruition, but you've got to have that longer term vision. So GCP is a great example of, you know, they had these ideas and they had these plans, but they couldn't they couldn't implement them straight away. It takes time to actually, you know, to actually get there. Um, so I think I, I agree with you on on the work of GCP and Innovate Cambridge again, I think we we would agree. We were busy trying to share with everyone that the, you know, the survey was out, make sure that you get involved. And I think it had a really good um, input, you know, series of inputs from everyone. So I hope that that will generate the the what's next. And I remember Tim Minshill, he was at one of the Business Weekly Awards dinners and he stood up and said, what should we be doing next? It's brilliant that we congratulate ourselves. So exactly the same thing as you've just said, we congratulate ourselves, but what are we doing next? So I think vision-wise, we can collectively make that happen. I think you're, the, those last two challenges that you said are going to be vitally important because if we don't address those, when you know we're not going to to continue to thrive. And I I would throw in a, a third challenge, which is inclusive growth. And if I could tell a short anecdote, which I think brings that in perspective, at least for me, on Easter Sunday. Um, I was watching France 24 News on YouTube because I like to do that to try and keep my French going. 
And I almost fell off my chair because there was a long piece about the UK economy and why is it so broken. And the case study they chose was Cambridge. Now, my reaction was a bit like yours. I was startled initially. But the introduction to this five-minute documentary about Cambridge was to say, Cambridge, beneath the picture postcards of the ancient city, and they showed Trinity Street, and behind the glitz of high-tech, and they showed the new AstraZeneca building, you have a city where nurses can't afford to live and teachers rely on food banks. And I think deep down a lot of us know that's true, but we don't yet have the mechanisms for addressing that. And I think that's the third challenge alongside water and electricity. Yeah, societal impact. Absolutely. Important, yeah. Yes. And it was quite shocking for me that with the visitors we get at St John's Innovation Centre, if we get visitors from Europe, they always come saying, you know, Cambridge is a success story. I think the message is getting out there more broadly now that Cambridge is no different from the rest of the UK in the sense that we have a lot of divisions which we need to attack. Yeah. And it's going to take the long term to, to pick up the point you were making earlier. So are you feeling positive about the future? I think I am. I, I think it's, a, a, as it were, a realistic, positive outlook as opposed to the rah-rah-go Cambridge that was prevalent in 2015, 2016. And it, it recognises that no solution is going to be easy. I think recently, trying to think about how we tackle the, the problems we have, I, I became very interested in researching what are, what are sometimes called wicked problems. Now, a simple problem is one that would appeal to somebody from uh, mathematics or engineering, where you've got an equation and you can solve for x. The point about a wicked problem is you have so many different competing stakeholders and so many levels of complexity that it's very difficult to say quite what the question is, let alone the answer. And to achieve an answer, probably what you need to do is two things in parallel. The first is you try to solve the individual bits of the jigsaw. And I think we've, we have seen that happening quite a lot in Cambridge. I mean, just look at the transformation of the biometal campus and just look at the huge breath of fresh air that Chris and Anne Russell has been bringing in a strategic direction. So you can solve individual bits. And at the same time, you need to do the big tent thing, bring everybody round the table together, so that at least I understand your problem, even if your preferred solution isn't my preferred solution. And I think in the past, we haven't, being able to live with that sense that there are, there are some solutions which are going to be the best we can do rather than the solutions which suit everybody. And for the future, I think we're going to have to live more and more with that level of complexity. I mean, that's been fascinating. And I think a, quite a different episode to the ones we've done before, which is, which is great. So thank you, for, uh, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. Well, it's been my pleasure. Uh, I, I really enjoy the podcast and more power to Alberta produce more of them <laughs> because this is how we get the, the messages about Cambridge out there that really matter. So thank you very much indeed. Thank you very much. So that was another great conversation on the podcast. And I have to say, I'm always pretty amazed at the depth of knowledge of people like David and Charles Cotton, he talked about Matthew Bullock, David Cleveley, you know, literally every time you speak to them, it's like a school day with them. How have you been then? I've missed you. Have you, have you missed me? Yeah, it's been two episodes in a row, isn't it? Where one of us has done it solo. I know. What do you think? Is it something we should carry on? Or? Absolutely not. Yay. We're like Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so, 
Yeah, no, I've had a really interesting and mixed week this week. Caught up with a lot of old friends coming through the Bradfield Centre, which has been nice. Gave some advice to a very early stage Web3 idea. Been discussing a potential book launch event at the Bradfield Centre. Is that another one of yours? No, no, not another one of mine. I have not got the energy to write another one. <laughs> Too busy with podcasts. We um, hosted a visit from Shandong University from China, who are interested to learn how the Cambridge cluster supports entrepreneurs and uh, spoke to a couple of people about getting involved in supporting the podcast how about you same very varied i think it's kind of it's it's quite nice because the email's a little bit quieter at the moment so i'm quite enjoying that but we've had a couple of new referrals that have come in for business which are really exciting a couple of new entrants into into cambridge but actually most of the week if it's like what is it in the summer everyone's like we want we need to name something we need a new new company name or we need to start something so um it's quite nice that the email's a little bit quieter because we've got some time to think so there's definitely it's summer of building brands it seems ramping everything up and getting organized for 21 to watch because that launches in a few weeks time as well as the start of of September um who else so I spoke to I don't know if, if people noticed but on some of the social posts um the Peter Cowley episode had quite a lot of comments on it and one of the people was Craig Dearden Phillips so I had to catch up with him he's also got a podcast so we were saying oh can we do something together and actually it was on a topic that we are talking about quite often which is on social impact of enterprises as well so that was pretty interesting so yeah, as usual, it's nice and busy. Never a dull moment, is there? So we've got some collaborations to look forward to then, have we? I think so. I think so. And in, in, into the new year, I think we can certainly start to get some more variety as well in terms of the content. Awesome. Okay. Well, um, should we segue over into the this week's tech news uh, from Business Weekly? Let's do it. So let's start off with Cambridge GAN Devices, who are a greener electronics pioneer and also a spin-out from the university. They have signed a distribution agreement with Singapore-based Supreme Components International to support customers across the Asia-Pacific region. Chief Commercial Officer Andrew Bacconi said the tie-up will help CGD support and grow its customer base in what he describes as an enormous market. Great news. So next up, we have Check It PLC, an intelligent operations platform for deskless workers operating from Cambridge. They are celebrating the renewal of a significant contract with John Lewis and report strong growth in the US. Uh, So this new contract covers services to both John Lewis and Waitrose and is worth around six million over three years. Marshall in Cambridge has joined forces with global aerospace giants GKN and Parker to explore liquid hydrogen fuel system solutions for next-generation zero-emission aircraft. Hydrogen propulsion, whether through fuel cells or combustion, is considered a critical pathway for the aviation industry to achieve its ambitious goal of net-zero emissions by 2050. And as part of its international expansion, Marshall has also won a South African Air Force C-130 fleet service and maintenance contract and appointed a US defence veteran, Ken Loy, as head of its aircraft maintenance and engineering facility in the United States. And jumping back to Business Weekly, they've announced their finalists of their annual Business Weekly Awards. 
Um, it's a real highlight for the science and tech calendar each year, um, not just for Cambridge, but actually internationally as well. There are 49 companies on the shortlist. It's great because a lot of them have already been on the podcast or are scheduled to come on. Um, so I think it's going to be really exciting to see who takes away those coveted trophies in September. So anyone who is interested, follow the LinkedIn feed or use the Business Weekly Awards hashtag for more information. And I think that's it, James, for this episode. Let's tune in next week when we'll be talking to one of those award finalists, actually, Gary Brockman of Second Mind. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. 